0: Good morning. Uh, I hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Did you guys have a good Thanksgiving? Was it chaotic for some of you or was it pretty chill? Anybody like super chaotic this this past Thursday? Oh, okay. Most hands. Yes. There we go. (laughs) There's confession here this morning. That's great. I'm curious, what, like, is the go-to Thanksgiving dish for you? Just shout it out. Like, what's your, like, favorite Thanksgiving item? Sweet potatoes. Deviled eggs. Okay. I like deviled eggs at Thanksgiving. Here we go. I like that. Uh, Anybody like the cranberry sauce, like the, the circular jelly? Oh, man, that mess is disgusting. Okay. My dad loves it. It's something about it. I don't know. It's just nostalgic, I guess, for some people. But I do hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, It it is a wonderful time of the year for all of us. And for some of us, it's a very challenging time. It's a very hard time for many of us. And I want to be cognizant of that. And one of the beautiful things about the Advent season, as we will discuss, is that it is a season of ultimately penance, reflection, reflection and even grieving and lament. It is not just a joyous occasion. And so my prayer for us is that we do not rush, though the culture around us is, to Christmas Day. May we not rush to Bethlehem, but may we walk ever so slowly to the manger moment. Just a quick note for you guys, we do have a couple of resources for you guys I wanted to to make aware of. One is out in our little foyer on the Next Steps table, there are these little cards, these Advent cards, that provide for you a way with your family or with your friends to be able to press into the various themes of the Advent season by reading a passage of Scripture, lighting a candle to follow our practice on Sunday morning, as well as listen to a specific song. And so if you're wondering, what can I do to engage this season? Uh, I would encourage you to take one of these, get you a couple of candles. They're very cheap on Amazon. And each week, would you just press into the various themes that are present in the Advent season. And so I would encourage you guys to pick up one of these on your way out the door. The next little resource for you guys is a little devotional that was actually written by or co-written by our very own Josh Leroy. Back in the back. Come on, Josh. Uh, And his brother, Matt. It's called The Protagonist, Stepping Into the Story of Advent. This is a wonderful little devotional that you can read, and it smells like patchouli. Smells just like Josh. Yes, smells like glory. I love it. Um, I think we need to spray all of these with patchouli, Josh. I'll be honest. That's wonderful. Um, And then the third thing, and this is really exciting. Um, Some of you know this, some of you don't. But we are actually next week going to be releasing our very first book that we've done as a community at Emmaus, which is really, really exciting. And it is called Common Season. This little book has been curated by a handful of photographers and creatives in our community to provide for us visuals and selected readings for the entire liturgical calendar. And so in this little book, there are awesome photos and photographs and passages of scripture and poems that you can use throughout the calendar year. And one of my favorite things about this little book is at the very end, on the very last page, it says, repeat. You can take it with you and use it all year round and come back to the very beginning each year. And so I'm really pumped about this. There are six photographers that contributed to this book. In fact, every single photo in this book is from a photographer in our community. And uh, yeah, just excited about Common Season. We'll have those available for you hopefully next weekend in our little bookstore out in the community room. So that being said, some of you might be new to the season of Advent. You might be new to even the word Advent. You might think about the word adventure or eventually, and there is some connection between those two words and the word advent. But, so we have a sense of clarity this morning, the word advent comes from a Latin word meaning arrival or coming. So if you're wondering what does the word advent actually mean, it means arrival or coming. In particular, it is a theological word representing both the coming of Christ in the incarnation or God becoming flesh at Bethlehem, as well as his second coming of both renewal and judgment. In fact, throughout the majority of church history, the emphasis has been not on the first coming, but actually on the second coming. Christ. And it would make sense in some regard because it actually fits in between the end of the liturgical calendar and the end of ordinary time or the end of the Pentecost season, as well as the very beginning of the liturgical calendar. So there's this dual meaning when it comes to arrival. The arrival at Bethlehem, yes, but also, and often forgotten, the second coming of Christ Jesus at the end of the age. Advent, though a single season in the calendar, is the reality that we all inhabit for the entirety of our lives. Every last one of us inhabit Advent for the entirety of our life because it is the liminal space of the in-between it is what the poet W.H. Auden calls in his famous Christmas oratorio, the time being. It is this tight liminal space of what's often referred to as well as the now and the not yet. Christ has come, but Christ is also coming again one day. And we live and we sit in the liminal space between the two and we feel the beauty of the first coming, but we sit in mystery longing for the second coming. And this is the beauty of Advent. Fleming Rutledge says it this way, who, by the way, has a wonderful book that's just called Advent. If you want to challenge yourself during the Advent season, I would encourage you to check out Fleming Rutledge. And her Advent book, it's about 400 pages long, but it's really, really good. I promise you, you should totally check it out. Uh, Actually, we're going to have some available for you uh, next weekend as well here, if you want to take on that challenge to read from the theologian Fleming Rutledge. But here's what she has to say about Advent. I think she puts it nicely. In a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. It can well be called the time between because the people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ, incognito, I love that word, in the stable in Bethlehem, and his second coming, in glory, to judge the living and the dead. Don't you love that Jesus comes incognito first, and then he will come in glory? And we sit in between obscurity and glory. This is where we find ourselves. Advent, she says, contains within itself the crucial balance of the now and the not yet that our faith, your faith, my faith requires. We have to have faith because we live in the now and the not yet. We live in the in-between. We live in the time being, so to speak. And there is this sense in this season that we must acknowledge the darkness of our world around us. And as we acknowledge the darkness of our moment and the brokenness of our society and the human condition, we then move ever so slowly and intentionally into the light of Christ. As Rutledge says, Advent begins in the dark. The Christ child, friends, was born in the dark. And for us, Advent begins in the dark of our society. If we look around, I think we can acknowledge that there is a present evil among us. That there is darkness. If we can look around at the events that have happened in our world, in our nation over the last couple of weeks we can see the present reality of evil and darkness, of an animating force in our world compelling individuals and humans and structures to produce various kinds of evil. And we lament and we grieve. Our world is dark, friends. Not to make this morning somber, But we need Jesus. Or we need something. For you, it might not be Jesus right now. And you're exploring your own sort of coping with the reality of darkness. But we need something to keep us going. I just have come to the realization that it's Jesus, the resurrected Lord. But we need something to keep us going in the midst of this dark age and time. And each of these four candles represent the intentionality of moving slowly toward the light. This wreath will light up more and more as we get closer to Christmas Eve, starting with one candle and then two and then three and then four. And this is, again, why I encourage you to practice lighting the candle at home with your family, with your friends, or just by yourself, because it's a way of embodying the season, engaging your body. We also want to be able to see children help light this candle because it introduces them to the story or to the tradition of the church, to the history of the church. You ever ever thought about the fact that you as a kid growing up, you love traditions? Like you love the things that you did at the holidays that were tradition, right? Like some people, maybe after Thanksgiving, the day after Thanksgiving, you always go out and cut down a Christmas tree. Like that's just what you do. You go and cut down your Christmas tree. Maybe for some of you, you go to a movie every single Christmas day. Is that anybody? Anybody do a movie around Christmas? That's something we did growing up. Go to the movies, right? That's something that we enjoyed. Maybe going to a Christmas Eve, you know, candlelight is actually a part of your tradition. Maybe there are certain meals that you eat. During the season, that's a tradition, or certain books that you read that are tradition. And, and when you're a child, you seem to enjoy it and love it and anticipate it and look forward to it. And you're like, Mom and Dad, can we have more traditions, please? But why is it that from much of the modern church, we've moved away from traditions? When, as children, and by the way, God actually compels us to be like little children, children, in fact, love traditions. Because traditions introduce story to us. Children shape the way in which we view the world. And so this is an important tradition of the church. Not a command by any means, but a practice that embodies this movement from the darkness into his glorious light. And as I have spent time this week in prayer and uh, preparation for this morning, the very first week of Advent, I became more and more intrigued and curious about this word hope. The very meaning of the word hope struck me all week. I was very interested in this word. What does it mean? What do we think it means in our moment? What is it? as well as how often misunderstood it is. And because of that, all I have desired for the entire week was for us as a people to not only be a people of hope, but have a clearer understanding of what hope actually is. Of what hope, in its essence, actually is is. So what I would like for you to do right now is I want you to engage in some dialogue with your neighbor, and I want you to discuss with them what you think hope means. Ready? Go. Discuss with your neighbor. What do you think hope is and means? It's a little quiet. Start talking, class. Come on. Okay, well done. Hopefully you participated in the discussion. If you are sitting in your pew and thinking to yourself, this is weird, I'm not talking to my neighbor because we don't do this in church, I just want you to know that a few weeks ago I was struck by a uh, philosopher talking about the nature of dialogue, and this this philosopher specifically made the, the reference to the fact that dialogue is actually closer to reality than monologue, because God is a trinity. God is a community, and God is in dialogue with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So when we practice dialogue, we're more engaged with reality than just listening to one person speak. So we will have some dialogue in our gatherings, so just, you know, prepare for it each and every week. (laughs) Given that Advent signifies the in-between space of the now and the not yet, of this liminal moment that we find ourselves in, or the once arrival and the second coming, You might say that the posture we are to take is one of active waiting. Active waiting. This is our posture in Advent. Not just in this season, but this is the posture of the believer for a lifetime. Active waiting. Rutledge says this in her book, finding the right balance between waiting and hastening is the challenge of our existence in the body of Christ until he comes again. Our nature in the modern era is to rush. We also have grown up in an age of instant gratification. We all want one day shipping. And for some of us, that's too long. Like we want our stuff this afternoon. And for a lot of us, we struggle to wait. We struggle with the fruit of patience. But this is where we find ourselves and we have to embrace it. Not rushing, but not sitting apathetically. So what do we do? We posture ourselves in active waiting. And this posture sums up our first theme and anchor theme of the entire Advent season, that being hope. Hope is the anchor theme of the entire Advent season. If you want to know what Advent really is all about, it is anchored in hope. Yes, peace. Yes, love. And yes, joy. But it is anchored in hope and active waiting. So I wanted to take a few moments this morning, very simply, to look at a few notes on hope. As we seek to gain greater clarity on what hope is and what hope means. Because if we're honest and we had a discussion about what you discussed in terms of the definition of hope and what it means, I'm sure we would get different answers. And one of the challenging aspects of our time is when we don't understand what words mean or we have misdefinitions. And so I want us to gain clarity today on what hope actually is. And then I also want to be able to see where we find hope in a very specific character in the advent of Jesus and how that parallels another character in the Old Testament. Because one of the things we want to do in the Advent season is to recognize that there are characters in the arrival of Jesus that actually mirror in character other individuals in the Old Testament in the story of Israel. So the first thing in terms of hope, is that hope is not optimism. Hope is not mere wishful thinking. Hope is confident. Optimism is an attitude, hope is an action. Just this past week, I was reading a very interesting. Article from Arthur Brooks, who's a social scientist at Harvard. And he wrote this article in The Atlantic looking at the difference between the two, between hope and optimism. There's great debate, even in psychology and sociology, in the social sciences, around hope and optimism and how they're similar but different. And he has this to say in regards to hope. He says it implies voluntary action, not just happy prediction. Hope comes from will and commitment. Optimism is a general disposition of a heart or of a mind. But hope is specifically tied to a distinct event coming to pass that you are working towards and that you're moving towards, where there is some sort of path to follow, Hope has a path. Optimism doesn't. Hope has an event connected to it. Optimism doesn't. Now, I hope all of us can be optimistic people. We're not pitting the two against each other, but what we are trying to do is gain clarity in the reality that hope is not optimism. It's not just wishful thinking. It's actually confident. And there is a path in connection to hope because there is an understanding of something that is going to come to pass that you are working towards. This moves us to the second note on hope. And that is hope is expectant waiting specifically for a desired future. Hope, by definition, has a futuristic orientation. It's futuristic in its sight. And hope has the odd way of drawing us forward. Hope pulls us towards the object or the event or the thing or the person that we are looking forward to in the future. The Greek word for hope is this word elpis. And it can mean expectation or even anticipation. So if you want a good synonym for the word hope, I do believe that it could be expectation or anticipation. So when we talk to someone about hope and you're trying to speak to someone who might be in a hopeless situation, you need to be able to provide some sort of anticipation of a desired future, some sort of expectation of an outcome. Not mere wishful thinking, as I said. Now, the specific definition for hope, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is this Hope is the expectation of something desired, desire combined with expectation. Hope has a unique relationship, a symbiotic relationship with desire. But it's not just desire. Hope is about external experience, an external event. Something ahead. desires is just something released by our body. It's just a want. You might desire a burger, but you hope that we go eat a burger at our favorite burger place, whatever it may be. Herein we find a bit of the difference, but hope is uniquely connected to your desire, your deepest desire at that. Your strongest desire, not so much, but your deepest desire is where we might begin to find Hope, or the lack thereof. The philosopher Dallas Willard, which you knew I couldn't get through a talk without bringing up Mr. Willard, so here we go. Hope is joyous anticipation of good that is not yet here or is unseen. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, we might be running this in the ground a bit. But what I do desire is that we have such an overwhelming sense of awareness around hope today. That in our conversations throughout the week, we're able to articulate with clarity what hope actually is. So that in this season, we can embody it in private and in public. So we're just going to hammer what hope actually is today. So it might sound redundant, but it will be clarifying. I do promise. The common Hebrew word for hope is this word tikvah. And it can mean the same as expectation or anticipation. But check this out. It also means the thing for which I live for. Something or someone that I am looking for. When we read in the Psalms, this call to look for, I look for you, O Lord. This is the notion of the Hebraic idea of hope or tikvah. The thing for which we live for. To that end, here's the third note on hope. It's not not optimism. It is expectant waiting for a desired future, something in the future that we are desiring and are waiting for anxiously. But the third thing is that hope gives us all a reason to live. Hope gives every single one of us a reason to live and to wake up. You woke up this morning, got out of bed, came here in the pouring rain because you have some hope. Some hope. If you're living, you have some hope. No matter the darkness in your life, no matter the challenge, no matter the brokenness, no matter the frailty, no matter what you're going through in this season, you have some hope. You ever get in your car and you're like, I got just enough gas to get to the gas station. You know what that's called? Hope. Hope. I have hope that I could get there. And for some of you, you came in today, in this season, in this time, and you're on empty. But you got just enough. Just enough. Just enough to get you to where you're going. And I pray that today you experience a new deposit, a new filling of hope. The theologian Jürgen Moltmann says, Totally without hope one cannot live. To live without hope is to cease to live. If you're moving, if you're breathing, you have hope. Hope enables you and I to channel our will and our freedom and our choices and our behavior toward a certain possibility in the future. Hope allows for us to be able to make decisions with our will and freedom to move towards a certain goal or possibility in the future. So why does a young athlete, a young athlete, Basketball player, you might say, why does he or she train night and day as in a nine-year-old? Why? Because of the hope to be in the NBA one day. Why does a young piano player practice the same notes over and over again? Because of the hope to play in a symphony. A lot of what we do In our daily life, the practices we have, the habits we have, our work ethic is actually connected to some sort of hope in the future. It's moving us in a certain direction. We do this because we hope for this. Hope gives us all a reason to live. Now, a very... Interesting secondary meaning for this Hebrew word, which is tikva for hope. Another interesting connection is with the word cord or rope. In the Hebrew, the word tikva not only means hope, but it can also mean a cord or a rope, specifically as an attachment. And because of that, hope, I believe, is attached to something or someone. Hope is attached to something or someone. In other words, we must put our hope in something or someone, expecting them or that thing to come through. Hope is, is attached to a person or a thing. It's not loose. Optimism is not attached to anything necessarily. But hope is attached to something or someone. It is an expectation or anticipation that we put into a thing or an event for some good reason. Hopefully, we have good reason to put our hope into it. It is both a noun and, by the way, a verb. Optimism does not have a verb tense, hope does. Hope is active, as we mentioned. So we have to have some good reason to put our hope into a person or thing or an event to come to pass. It is attached to something. And because it's attached, we almost hold on to the rope as we move ever closer to it. We hold on to the rope. When you're, you know, you're rappelling off of some sort of cliff or whatever, you, you hold on to a rope because it's supposed to get you to where you're going. It's supposed to get you to safety. I've heard that in, in places where there are blizzards often and someone goes out, they will often will tie a rope to a tree and they will hold on to the rope as they're out, you know, collecting firewood or whatever it may be so that if, you know, this snow is too much, they can use the rope to guide themselves back. Hope is something that we attach to someone or some sort of event. In essence, hope is a rope. Hope is a rope. Not to be you know, cheesy and give you a rhyme this morning, because I'm not a rapper by any means. But that being said, hope is in fact a rope or a cord. So, what or whom do we hope for? That's a question. What or to whom do we hope for? Titus chapter 2, I think, gives us a very clear definition of hope from a New Testament perspective and from a biblical perspective at that, but also provides for us as believers and really for all people, whether we know it or not, the thing that we hope for. More specifically, the one that we hope for. Here's what Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 13 says. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Check verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, what is it? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know what hope is? It is waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is inside of us, according to Paul in Colossians 1, verse 27 through 28, it is the hope of what? Glory. This is why I said it's fascinating. We move from incognito in Bethlehem to glory at the end of the age. There is a a progression towards glory. Even if we think things are just, man, they're really going backwards. In this renovation project, it is a move from obscurity into glory, an ever-increasing glory at that. The divine radiance of God, tangible presence of God, is what we ultimately hope for. This is a very clear idea of who or what we hope for as believers. We wait For the appearing of the glory of our great Savior in Jesus Christ, who, by the way, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Why are we eager to do what is good? Because we have hope. Because we've been redeemed in the past, but because of the redemption in the past, what Christ has done on the cross and his resurrection and ultimately his ascension, there is a promise of a future glory, of ultimate renewal and restoration. So this is what we look to because of this promise in the past. And because of that, we are attached to Christ. And we are attached to his reality. Reality. The philosopher Peter Craved says this about hope. For Christian hope does not come from us. This is key. It is our response to God's promises. It is not a feeling welling up from within, something we can whip up at will. It is saying yes to God's guarantees. It is the alternative, listen to this, to calling God a liar. Hope's object is not the abstract promises, but the concrete God, the person who made them. God is always first, always the initiator. Even our seeking him is the result of his first seeking us. Therefore, hope too must be our response to his initiative. God is not the response to human hope, our hope is the response to him and his promises. We have hope because he has sought us out, we have hope because God became flesh. We have hope because of what he has accomplished on the cross. We have hope because he resurrected from the grave three days later. And we have even greater hope because he ascended 40 days later and sat down at the right hand of the Father as if to say, this is a promise. I'm confident. I will be back one day. Augustine speaks of hope as expanding our heart's desire to see God face to face expanding our heart's deepest longing to see God face-to-face in his presence and in his glory. Hope is attached. Hope is a rope that we hold on to, attached to something or someone. For us, as the people of God, it is the incarnate God, Christ the King, Jesus of Nazareth. The fifth note on hope is that Hope is actually a virtue. Hope is a capacity that we have for a moral act, to act a certain way, to behave a certain way. According to Willard, it is a condition for moral attainment. It's a condition that we must have in order to act of character, to act in morality, to have ethics. But it's not just something that we attain. It's actually something that we receive. It's this weird, unique connection between both something received as well as something that we act out of. And we know this because in, with Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says this in what's often called the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. 13. Paul says, These three remain faith, hope, and love. These are what scholars and theologians call theological virtues or the theological virtues of Christianity. Faith or trust, hope or expectation, and love or charity. And because hope, friends, is a moral act, it is something that we can extend to another. It is something that we can give to another person or individual or group. If we possess hope, if we have hope, and have attached our hope to some sort of end that we are confident in, we can share that same hope, expectation, longing, and anticipation to another. When we share hope, we are essentially saying, come grab hold of the rope that I'm holding on to. Now, you might be asking, what about faith? What's the difference between hope and faith? Faith is trusting in. But hope is expecting that because of faith. So faith is trusting in and hope is expecting that because of faith. Faith is confidence in a person. Hope is confidence in them coming through. Faith is trusting in a chair to hold you up. Hope is expecting for it to. This is the distinction between faith and hope. And a very important character, as I mentioned earlier, in the arrival of Jesus, models this very virtue of hope. And it's a young teenage girl by the name of Mary, or her Hebrew name, Miriam. See how she embodies hope here in Luke chapter 1, verse 30 through 38. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Think about the idea of the event. Futuristic vision, desired future, expectation. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is an exercise in hope. Now, it doesn't just say, May your word to me be fulfilled. That is hopeful. That is expectation. May it be so. But she says, I am the Lord's servant. Teenage girl who's about to have God inside of her. Not a big deal. Like, that's nuts. Think about, you know, what it was like when you had your first child. You're like, what is happening, right? This is wild. You know, I remember Jordan talking about having, you know, pregnancy with Selah and just being like, what is inside, what is inside of me, right? This is fascinating, you know, let alone God inside of you. And she says, I'm the Lord's servant. When one has hope, when you and I have hope, our response should always be, I'm the Lord's servant. I am the Lord's servant. I'm here to serve. I'm here to, to move towards the end that you have in store for me. I'm here to work with you. I'm here to co labor with you. I'm here to serve. Because I have hope, I serve. Because you and I have hurt hope, we serve and extend to others. And when she says, may your word to me be fulfilled, she's also essentially saying, would it come into existence? Or the Greek word can allude to the idea of to generate something. Or to come to pass. Or what I love is this translation here, appear in history. Hopeful anticipation. May your word appear in history. This is hopeful expectation postured in Mary. Now, here is what's fascinating. In Matthew 1, we see the lineage of Jesus. A lineage filled with surprisingly hope-filled and hope-extended people. Servants of Yahweh. People who had an impact on the coming of Christ. Now, I know many of you read Matthew 1 and you kind of just skim it and just keep, keep rolling because it's just a long lineage, which was very common in the ancient world. But it shows the impact of people in the lineage of Jesus or the line of Jesus. And in this lineage, there is another young woman ostracized by her community due to the fact that she was a prostitute, but played a very key role in the birth of Jesus. Her name was Rahab. On top of that, in her being a prostitute, she was also a pagan Canaanite who God redeemed and used in order for him to extend hope to his people. When Joshua, in Joshua chapter 2, sent in two spies into the promised land, specifically into Jericho, Rahab, this prostitute, protected, hid, and housed them, keeping them from harm. But something interesting happens in Joshua 2, where we see an extension and a reception of hope. In the second chapter of Joshua, Rahab goes to these spies that she has housed, that she has hidden, on top of the roof before their bedtime, and says this to them: a Canaan, Canaanite woman who's not Hebrew. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. I know it. I know it. That's a hopeful statement. I know that the Lord has given you this land. You ever thought about how there's, there's a lot of deep discussions that happen before bedtime? About life, existential matters, kids ask crazy questions before bedtime. I always did, you know, just weird out there questions. Sometimes you have a deep conversation with a friend on the phone, with a spouse, and something happens in the dark. You begin having conversation about hope or the lack thereof or meaning or things that were shallow during the day find a depth at night. And I love that at bedtime, this prostitute, where bedtime meant something totally different for her and her life, goes to these two spies and makes the proclamation in hope that I know that the Lord has given you this land. Then she begs these two to also protect her in the destruction of Jericho. They asked her, the two spies, to place a scarlet red cord outside of her window as a a promise. And it says this, so she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. If they saw the scarlet cord, they were going to protect her and her family in the greater destruction of Jericho. Now, let's tie it back in. The word for cord, as I mentioned earlier, specifically here, is tikvah, which also can mean and be translated hope. With destruction all around, Rahab put her hope in a scarlet red cord. A cord that symbolically, spiritually, and even biologically attached her and her family to the very lineage of the Son of God. A hope that passed down through, I would say, DNA. We now call this, in like neuroscience, it's called epigenetics. Go read the lineage of Jesus and you see epigenetics at play. Hope-filled people passing through DNA. Hope was a character trait in the line of Jesus, through the people of Judah, through the line of David passed down. It attached her to the family of God. It attached her to the lineage of the one who would bring ultimate hope. She attaches her hope to a scarlet red cord, almost foreshadowing the red bloodshed of Jesus on the cross. Both Mary and Rahab possessed hope, as well as extended hope. Rahab housed representatives of God's chosen people. Mary housed God's people's chosen one. Both Mary and Rahab actively waited in between the unknown and the promise. And for Rahab, it was the promise of the land that she shared with the spies. But for Mary, it was the promise of the kingdom. All done in the midst of desolation, destruction, and social chaos. Hope is something that is birthed in destruction, chaos, and disrepair. It is something that gets us through and things don't look very hopeful for many of us. We hold on to something because we know that there is a promise that we cling to from the past, looking ahead to the future. The very nature of hope, my friends, is active waiting in the darkness. It is anticipating the dawn. St. Augustine says, hope is a necessity for us in these days of exile from heaven. It is our consolation on the journey. When a traveler gets tired of walking along the dusty road, he puts up with fatigue because he hopes to arrive home. Rob him of any hope of arriving and immediately his strength for walking is broken. So too, the hope for heaven, which we have now, is an important factor easing the pain of our just exile and sometimes harsh journey. We find ourselves in, as we read earlier from Romans chapter 8, the pains of childbirth. But we eagerly wait. We know that the whole creation, all of it, you and I and all creation, has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. But the beauty of childbirth is that in the pain, something new is being born. And in the pain of our moment, we have hope that something new is being born. It is something that we are weirdly experiencing now, though it hurts, even though we don't see it, we know there is something coming to pass. That for which we hope is both here. And not yet here, just as Mary's child was already present in her womb as he was becoming what he would be. She experienced the child even as she hoped for him. And yet the child would not fully be until he was born. Many of us now are experiencing what we call the first fruits of the age to come. There is pain, but there is hopeful expectation of new birth, of regeneration, of new creation. Our very moment in Advent is like childbirth. May we lean into what is being born. And we need more people, all of us, possessing and extending hope in our time. But to extend hope, you and I need to know the story, the future promise, Is legitimized because of past action. We need to know the story. We need to know the past, the present, and the future. Soren Kierkegaard says, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. You can understand life and why there's brokenness by looking backwards, but you have to live facing forward. And we live facing forward out of a posture of hope. For the time being, in Auden's language, May we be a group of prophetic artists giving glimpses of what is above the horizon, painting pictures of what is to come. May the little light in us be a foreshadowing of the future where there will be nothing but light, no darkness any longer. And this little candle is merely a symbol in the darkness of a time where there will be no darkness and be nothing but light. So, to close today, where do you find your hope? Where do you find your hope and why? What gave you confidence to put your hope into that? Do you hope for a better future? Why? What gives you reason to hope for a better future? Is it humanity? we talked about this. A better question than that, I believe, is what do you hope for? Not just do you hope for a better future, but ultimately what do you hope for? It's even better than the question of what you want or what do you want. There's something deeper about the question of what do you hope for? And that is my question for all of you today. If you're new, welcome. What do you hope for? What keeps you going? What are you moving towards as you pull along some sort of rope? And where do you find your hope today? And is it working? Hope is not absence of fear, but it's the presence of God. We need hope today. You need hope. The world needs hope. Let's close our eyes this morning. one of the most hopeful practices that we engage in as the people of God is the practice of the Eucharist or Thanksgiving, communion, the Lord's Supper. because our hope derives from this very idea of Christ's broken body and his poured out blood for us. We hope in the midst of brokenness because Christ has shown us that in brokenness comes life, that actually death is a gateway to new creation, to rebirth. And I honestly, I don't know where all of you are today, And I don't know everyone in the room today. But I do think God is stirring something in us to at least be curious about this hope that we claim. This hope that we cling to. And I want you honestly in this season to reflect on the hope that you currently have. and to ask the hard questions of what is it that I really hope for? Because deep within us, whether we know it or not, we actually hope for the the coming glory of Christ the King. We hope to be known eternally, not by a friend, not by a partner, not by a coworker, not by a spouse, not by a family member, but by a transcendent God who has displayed his love for us. An ancient proverb says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. If your hope is deferred today, I am praying that you would have a change of heart and change of mind and you might get well and that coming to the table is an act and a step towards healing and that to come to the table is a response in hope. We come to the table in response. Christ has sought after us. He sought after you. He came in obscurity. He came in the dark. And in your darkness, in our darkness, he provides a little bit of light that we might extend to the world. Hope is nothing but light shining in the darkness. Headlights driving down a dark road. I'm gonna have members of our prayer team come forward if they can.